When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. This is a special episode analysing the Chancellor's Spring Statement with Paul Johnson from the IFS. Now, you may remember Paul was on last year and he is the best person for explaining what budgets and spring statements mean because he cuts through all the politics, gives it to you straight in very clear terms. And this is a fantastic, impartial analysis of what Rishi Sunak's statement this week means, what the effect of it will be. Um, some of the economic realities are not just tied to the statement, but over the, the last few years and looking ahead in the medium term and what the effect of all this will be and just the realities of dealing with inflation and what the Bank of England can do. This is just a phenomenal. This is like having a really good, I'm sure I said this last time, but it is like having a great economics tutor where you can just ask them anything and they tell you it in, 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 a, in a style in which you completely understand. This is a phenomenal education on the state of our public finances, the political and economic choices that Rishi Sunak has made since becoming Chancellor, whether he's been consistent or not, the reality of who's paying what and what the effect of that will be, and um, some great stuff on Labour's proposed windfall tax. This is just fantastic, it, just in general, because it's not just about the spring statement. It's about the economic realities facing us in the next three or four years, about our behaviour change and why that's impacting things. It's just phenomenal. I could always talk to Paul for hours and hours and hours, but he is a man much in demand, particularly on weeks like this. Um, don't forget, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com, usually with stories of unusual uh, encounters with politicians. I'm still getting tons of messages about the Neil Kinnock and Tom Tugendhat episodes, which Dan Jarvis got in touch. Now, if you haven't listened to the Tom Tugendhat episodes yet, then I won't give anything away. But um, Tom tells the story about Dan Jarvis. They both were, <laughs> they both served in the armed forces. Uh, they both <laughs> served in Iraq and Afghanistan. And um, Tom in the uh, show the other week, said that he'd seen Dan uh, in a particular state. <laughs> uh, Dan Jarvis got in touch to say that he loved the episode. So we can only present, he did not deny the story, which I, again, I won't spoil, but if you have heard it, you'll know what I mean. Um, so we will take the, well, the fact that Dan Jarvis enjoyed it, we'll take it as Tom Tugendhat was uh, absolutely <laughs> telling the truth about what he saw. So there you go. Um, so anyway, uh, and also thank you to everyone who's come to see me on tour. Oh man, this week has just been such a pleasure. I, you know what? After COVID, being out there on the road is such a treat. Cause you just don't—I get the train everywhere. It's a lovely way to travel. Obviously, not that I'm turning into Michael Portillo, but you're like, oh man, this week I've been in Norwich, Maidstone. You know, the last few days, all over the place in Annick and in the northeast, and then I'm up in Scotland next week. I think. Both Edinburgh dates have sold out, by the way, and I think there's only about five tickets left for Glasgow. So uh, if you are planning to come and see me in Scotland, do get those tickets now at mattford.com. Um, but anyway, I'm coming to Leicester as well soon. Uh, but enough, anyway, enough of the self-promotion. This is a special episode uh, with Paul Johnson uh, from the IFS. And this is just from start to finish, the best briefing on the spring statement you will get, because it's not just about the tinkering around the edges. It puts it all in context in very clear language. Enjoy. Well, first things first, this must be like being a nun at Easter for you. You must, this must be the most in-demand <laughs> period <laughs> for the IFS. Uh, I, <laughs> well, that, that's a simile I haven't come across before, like a nun at Easter. Um, I, think that, I can't think of too many... Uh, uh, too many similarities there, but but yes, it's certainly um, budgets and spring statements are certainly the busiest couple of days of the year. They, they're actually great fun while they happen, but I'm quite pleased they only happen twice a year. Yes, I mean they must obviously for the it's a whole load of effort for the government, but you are the people that really everyone wants to talk to. You are the leading independent voice on well fiscal studies. So you you've been on every show, every podcast, every tele show, and thank you for coming on this one to to go over the chance of the statement. 
first things first, just on the on the meat of the statement itself. What is the? Well, it's just so hard sometimes for the public to pick through exactly what the main points are. What would you say is if you had to sum it up in a headline? What is the main headline of this spring statement? The spring statement specifically, I think the the big headline is that the Chancellor is offsetting a bit of the um, uh, big increase in national insurance contributions that was announced in the autumn, particularly for uh, the lower paid. And he's made a big sort of pre-election gimmick, I would call it, um, uh, in terms of uh, penny off the basic rate in 2024. I think the other headline is actually what he didn't do, uh, which is that he didn't do anything for people on benefits. Um, and I know you asked for one headline. The other thing I think is really important to do is to put this in the context of what he announced a year ago and what he announced in the autumn. Uh, it, it's important to um, see all of that in context, not just what he did yesterday, um, sorry, on Wednesday this week in, um, in isolation. Obviously, during a period of not just national but international strife, people's first thoughts are, are, are with the most vulnerable. He says, effectively, like, like you did there, that he'd already made his announcement on universal credit in a previous statement, and, and that still stands. Therefore, this statement wasn't going to focus on those people. Um, is he right that he's still helping people on benefits? I saw him say on Sky News yesterday that the low paid is his biggest priority. Taking all of his statements together as a package, could you draw that as a fair conclusion? Well, he's certainly helping them. Um, so he's done essentially three things. One is that he did make universal credit more generous for people in work uh, back in October. And that's worth potentially £1,000 a year to quite a few of those people. So that's quite significant, but only for those people in work. Um, and the other thing he did, which he did just in February, which was um, give... Um, essentially £150 to everyone uh, in council tax band D and below. So that's a flat rate across the distribution and £200 off energy bills, uh, but repayable, uh, which again, flat across the distribution. So you put those together and that's uh, all of that is proportionally targeted at um, people on lower incomes is worth quite a lot to people on um, benefits. But um, since February, we now expect inflation to be higher than we thought in February, particularly energy bills. And because benefits are only going to go up by 3.1% in, uh, in April, and inflation is going to be probably averaging 8% over the year, put all of that together and people on welfare benefits will be worse off in 2022 than they were in 2021. And that's they're obviously the most vulnerable group. Now, there's a decision about priorities, about how much you might want to protect them and spend them on them and so on. But given that the, the main reason they're going to be worse off is actually a sort of almost an administrative oversight in the way that we increase benefits each year. In other words, we increase them in line with what inflation was in September. Um, I don't really understand why I didn't just come back and say, well, this year we'll increase it in line with what we expect inflation to be in in April. Um, uh, and then I think both he would have helped the most vulnerable and he would have avoided an awful lot of the very bad headlines that he's had over the last couple of days. So I'm slightly baffled by that one, if I'm absolutely honest. Do you think that's the sort of thing he will correct in the coming days and weeks? It would be odd if he, I mean, it, it would be an admission. I mean, the only way he could come back and do that would be to stand up and say, I made a mistake. Because, you know, we, we now know, um, or we now got a very good idea of what, you know, and have known for months what the impact of these energy price rises and inflation would be on this group. Um, so he might come back, but I think if he does, he would have to come back fairly humbly and say, look, I'm, I, I made a mistake here. I, be quite hard to brazen through and say something has changed and while it's a, the wrong choice you know at the end of March it's the right choice at the end of um at the end of April I mean that, that I mean there is one sort of practical administrative thing that he might bring to his defense which is that bizarrely enough other than universal credit a lot of benefits it does take months and months and months to make changes to them so um, uh, but there's another reason why delay is a bad idea, because um, you know, it may well be true that if he made the announcement now, you couldn't actually make the changes until late summer. 
But equally, if he doesn't make the announcement for another couple of months, it'll be even longer before you can actually make the changes. Yeah, you may have another problem. You know, if you get inflation uh, continuing at the rate it's at or, or, or getting higher, is that likely to, to have an impact on unemployment? And then you'll end up with more people, therefore, on an, you know, unemployed, on, on out-of-work benefits and, and falling behind. That, that, is, um, that is almost the biggest question. Um, and I don't know the answer to that. I mean, there, there are two ways that this could go in a sort of, in a sort of um, you know, extreme sense. I mean, it, inflation um, could um, uh, result in um, higher wages uh, and um, sort of the economy overheating more generally and then more inflation and the labour market getting tighter and tighter. Or it could result in um, uh, unemployment because you know, firms aren't able to put their prices up in line with the costs that they're, um, that they're facing and people can't afford to buy the products that are being produced. And um, different people take different views on that. Uh, and the, the which way it goes will matter really uh really fundamentally for the for the direction of um the economy over the next several years i mean what a lot of you know the, the danger is it does both those things if you you know people are harking back a lot to the 1970s i mean it's very different now from the 1970s in all sorts of ways not least that you know we don't have strong unionization across the workforce but in the 1970s in a sense you got the worst of both worlds, you had um, inflation resulting in higher wages, resulting in more inflation and higher unemployment because um, some, you know, some people, some groups were, as it were, pricing themselves out of jobs or British industry was becoming uncompetitive. And that's what people called stagflation. So unemployment and inflation going up. At the moment, we don't have any signs at all, actually, of unemployment going up. Unemployment is the dog that has to an astonishingly just has not barked um, post, uh, post-COVID. And isn't it interesting, um, you know, a year ago when we spoke, we were talking about COVID and its impact on the economy. We, you know, we're, we're only 10 minutes in, we haven't even mentioned COVID. It's the biggest shock in, biggest shock in hundreds of years. And already we're sort of thinking about other stuff. But is that because um, uh, the war in Ukraine has focused the mind elsewhere? Or obviously, still is an economic impact of uh, of COVID of all that borrowing to pay for furlough that the money has to come back. Just to decouple those two things, how much is this inflation to do with COVID? Um, well, uh, in a global sense, quite a lot of it is uh, to do with COVID because even before Ukraine, uh, inflation was on its way up to you know, historically very high levels. And that was associated with um, problems in supply chains right across uh, right across the world. Um, also associated, I think, with the huge amount of money that governments across the world pumped into uh, economies through um, uh, through COVID. Um, in, in the in the UK, you've got I mean, lots you know, lots of households are sitting on lots of money that they saved. Um, through the COVID period, we've seen what's been happening to house, house the housing market, which still seems to be going pretty crazy, and that's associated with ultra low interest rates and some of the money that was saved through COVID. So, the underlying the, the thing about Ukraine is it's come on top of what was already really quite an inflationary environment, and that inflationary environment was created by the combination of the structural problems that globally that COVID created and the wall of money that governments threw at it. And now on top of that, effectively, fuel prices have driven up not just the price of fuel itself, but all the consequentials that that impacts on transporting goods across borders, uh, running, you know, heating for firms and all stuff like that are reflected in prices. Is, is it as simple as that or am I over... Um... Yeah, I mean, that's broadly right. I mean, that, that, again, there was already a, an issue with fuel, with, with energy prices pre-Ukraine. I mean, that was one of the things that was um, driving the, you know, the pre-Ukraine inflation. So again, it's, it's, um, it, it's bad news on top of bad news, in a sense. I mean, you, if, if the Ukraine situation had occurred, if COVID hadn't occurred and we were in the sort of situation we'd been in in, you know, 2020 and then Ukraine had occurred, 
we would not be talking about inflation at you know, 7, 8, 9, 10% over the next couple of years. We would have been talking about a, a spike up and we've been talking about worried about fuel prices, but we would not have been anywhere near as worried as we are because it's sitting on top of what was already uh, yeah, actually quite a serious situation in terms of energy prices and inflation more generally. So, you know, this has come at a, um, uh, from an economic point of view, this has come at a very bad moment. I mean, much worse economically than if it had happened three years ago. This is the first time since independence of the Bank of England that inflation has hit these heights. Uh, and we know that the, uh, you know, the, the, the governor of the Bank of England has to write to uh, the chancellor if inflation goes above or below a, quite a narrow band. Obviously, it's, it's way above where it's meant to be. Traditionally, uh, chancellors uh, pre-independence might try and control inflation with interest rates. Obviously, interest rates have been very, very low for a very long time. Firstly, would it be right to try and correct this inflationary surge, given that it's global, by altering UK interest rates? And, and I guess connected to that, how much can the UK do about inflation on its own? Yeah, really good questions. <laughs> and, um, I mean, I think what, what, what one thing is, I, I, I personally, I found it surprising throughout the second half of last year, the Bank of England didn't do more at that time because it was obvious, um, seemed to me, uh, that inflation was you know, on, on a pretty upward path at that moment. Um but you're right, a lot of this inflation is, as you say, globally generated. So what, what's the point of the UK doing anything? Um, well, I mean, the point about increasing, um, uh, if, if, if we do increase interest rates, then that, uh, you know, that will, um, I mean, that, that should um, increase the value of the currency, which would make imports cheaper. Um, is one is, is one route to um, impacting inflation, uh, but it also um, it also um, might have a dampening impact on asset prices, um, and you know to some extent, if people don't feel their asset values going up so fast, they might be less willing to spend, and that might have a dampening um, effect on inflation. And if you've got a variable rate mortgage, you need to spend more on it if interest rates go up. Though. Uh, most mortgages are you know, now fixed for a period of time, so the the mechanism is a bit dulled. Um, so it's uh, it's it's definitely not a straightforward thing, and it's quite difficult for the bank because they really don't have you know their their instruments are interest rates and quantitative easing, which have an effect looking two or three years or a couple of a year or two hence on price levels and inflation, but they're not immediate. I think the government also needs to sort of play a role here as well. I mean, if you look at you know, what happened over the 2010s, is you had very tight fiscal policy, in other words, austerity, and very loose monetary policy. In other words, as you said, the historically incredibly high, incredibly low interest rates. Um, now, you know, I, I think in retrospect, we might have been better off with slightly higher interest rates and slightly looser fiscal policy. I think this time round, um, you know, we, uh, again, I think could do with some slightly higher interest rates. So the Bank of England could do that, uh, and that might have some sort of an effect and, and help things for, for, for UK uh, inflation. Uh, just thinking about the sort of medium term then, obviously people, <laughs> I don't remember the 1970s, a lot of people who listen to this podcast do. Um, I remember vaguely the 90s, and I certainly remember the Labour narrative about interest rates at 15%, inflation at 12%, houses getting repossessed, negative equity, all stuff like that. Even though we might not be at 70s levels, is there a fear that something that similar that happened in the 1990s might happen? Well, again, we're, um, uh, you know, we're a very long way from those kinds of interest rates. I mean, the interest rates were much, much higher in the early 90s, and indeed, I do remember that, that and uh, I made my very first house purchase, I think, when, uh, when interest rates were really quite high. Oh, God. Um, uh, and, you know, we, we, but actually where we are at the moment is the interest rates at less than 1%, inflation at something like 7 or 8%. That's probably, I mean, I haven't checked this, that could be the lowest real interest rate. In other words, once you take out of inflation in the entire history of the country, I haven't checked that, but it's, it certainly feels plausible. Um, and that makes borrowing incredibly cheap. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that I think is one of the reasons why, given you know, all of the uncertainty that's around, 
house prices are still zipping on up because they're actually probably the best hedge against inflation that you've got. Um, uh, and, 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 and the borrowing is so cheap. So, I, I, you know, I don't think, I think every sort of crisis is different. So this has some comparisons with the 1973-4 period um, and beyond in two respects. First, there, there was an oil price shock there, as there is an energy price shock here. And secondly, and this is not quite the same thing, but in the early 70s, um, there was a huge injection of cash into the economy to try and overcome that. It's become known as the Barber boom after the um, Conservative Chancellor at the time, Tony Barber, who just chucked huge amounts of money at the economy. And the Labour government then had to deal with massive inflation, which was partly stoked by their, uh, by their predecessors. And of course, we've got two of those things now. We had huge amounts of money thrown into the economy in very different circumstances to deal with COVID and this energy price uh, rise. So there are some things similar there, but as I say, there are other things that are very different and not least, as far as we've seen over the last 20 years, um, there's been very little of the same kind of relationship between um, inflation and wages and between tight labour markets and wages that we got in the 1970s. And we, you know, we are in a world of massively lower um, interest rates of much uh, more flexible labour markets and so on. And then the, the sort of thing that um, uh, it, I think I, th I think it's actually less of a um, even less of a you know, parallel with what was happening in the early 90s, where, you know, we had the um, actually, again, you know, we had the sort of response to a massive um, boom created by um, uh, essentially large amounts of money pumped into the economy by Nigel Lawson at the end of the 1980s and by um, uh, the relationship between the UK exchange rate and the European exchange rate. And then we had the collapse after we fell out of the European exchange rate mechanism. So again, that had its specific, um, had its specific elements. And I think we've got a different, a different set of specific elements this time. And I think what one learns after what well, is far too long um, working on and thinking about these things is that, um, you know, you prepare for all of the previous crises, and then a completely different one comes along. Well, that's it. I mean, I wonder, people always want big, bold answers and and, uh, and very clear government reaction. And I wonder sometimes if in a situation like this where things are volatile, actually not always taking big action is, is the correct thing. Whether just letting it play out. If he thinks that actually this is a short-term inflationary shock, trying to sort of overcorrect will create medium and long-term problems when the best op uh, option might be to actually do a little less. I think there's some truth in, in, in what you're saying, but it's become politically harder and harder to do that, particularly given the huge amount of, um, uh, huge amount of protection that we got through COVID. I think people have come to expect protection. Um, and, uh, and, and also, I think there clearly are some people who will struggle if something isn't done. I think that's why there's been so much focus on those on the very, uh, on the very lowest um, incomes. Uh, but I also think there's a, you know, the Chancellor has acknowledged correctly that, you know, we are all being made poorer by this. And the only choices he's got is about how to distribute the pain effectively. Um, and he's chosen to distribute it in terms of his policies. I mean, he's actually, he's, 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 he's very, very dramatically increasing taxes on higher earners. Um, and he is providing some protection for lower earners on those, um, and those, those on benefits. He's also cutting back on his spending plans relative to what he was intending. So I think his best defense of what he's doing is, in the short run, I'm doing some stuff to protect some groups on lower earnings. I'm, you know, in the long run, I'm really taking some money from, um, from, from higher earners. I'm sharing this cost across you know, people who are dependent on welfare and people in work and public um, services. And you're right, I can't do vastly more in the coming year, not least because um, I'm worried that if I pump piles more into the economy yet again, that might stimulate even more inflation or it might lead to the Bank of England really sticking interest rates up even quicker. Okay, so that's really interesting because it does feel as if 
there's a slight contradiction. You know, his his debut a couple of years ago was, I'm going to pay everyone's wages for a year and a half. This incredible initial intervention from Rishi Sunak. And now he feels like a guy saying, oh, well, things are difficult. I can't do everything for everyone. Um, it, it almost feels like he's contradicted himself, but I guess yeah, he I can't keep yeah. doing well, it. I don't think it is a contradiction in a sense, because, I mean, you know, what happened two years ago when we had COVID, which was a sort of, you know, an act of God almost, uh, a one-off thing where, and the, and the government then closed the economy down. It was a government decision to do that. You just can't do that without providing um, the sort of support that he did. I mean, I think there, you know, there are arguments that he provided too much support. And um, as we've seen, uh, there was quite a bit of fraud and so on, but you had to do something along those lines. Now, um, there's, a, there's an interesting, if depressing intellectual question, you could ask what would have happened if we hadn't, you know, if vaccines hadn't worked and this had been a long-term thing. Um, I mean, it doesn't bear thinking of really, but you know, um, God. He, we and the rest of the world took a bet on this being something short term because vaccines would work or, you know, in a slightly less um, positive world, you know, we'd have en ended up, we would have ended up with herd immunity. Um, but it was a, it was a, it was a act of God. It was hoped to be and was relatively short term. And the government put in place this extraordinary stay at home, stop working, had to, you know, have, have to support people. We've now got something which is a combination of almost the, um, the hangover from all of that, the supply chain problems, the inflation that came pre-Ukraine and the, an, an energy price shock, which will make us worse off in the, in the longer run, um, where this is much more of a traditional um, uh, economic shock where, you know, you can't, you literally can't just, I mean, it, it, it's actually quite hard to see how you could um, protect everyone forever from that kind of thing. Now, uh, you can smooth that shock. And to some extent, again, that's what he's doing. Is that there's, a, there's a tax cut overall over the, um, or, well, for some people at least, over the coming year. And then it's grand, uh, and tax increases are gradually ratcheting up over the following years in order to help pay for, um, uh, for some of that. But I think that's, I, I think you identify one of the reasons exactly why it's so difficult for the chancellor to explain why he isn't doing everything because two years ago he did do everything but you know we've never had a chancellor who's been able to say you know look here's a here's a big economic shock and nobody's going to notice it you just can't do that in you should celebrate yourself every day but some days you should celebrate with jewelry whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. What does this week's statement tell us about his economic priorities? Um, well, I think one of the... You know, he continues to say that he's a tax cutting chancellor. And so his 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 description of himself is all about <laughs> relatively smooth state, um, ta cutting taxes and so on. I think, you know, a more honest description, if, if I had his economic instincts and, and, and I was doing what he was doing, I think I would put it more like this. I would say, I want to do everything I can to keep taxes as low as I can. Um, I believe in a small uh, 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 a state which provides the health service and education and so on in the most efficient way possible and an economy which allows me to keep taxes as low as possible. At the moment, because we're coming off a decade of austerity, because we've got huge pressures on the NHS and because the economy is growing slowly, partly to do with COVID, partly to do with all sorts of other problems with our productivity, at the moment, in order to provide the services you all want, I have no choice but to um, have taxes going up over the next several years. I am the guy who will make sure they go up as, as little as they can whilst providing you with the services that you, that you want. But I am, I'm sorry, but I am raising taxes and I'm doing it in this particular, uh, uh, but I'm doing it in this particular way. 
in the long run, I've set out in my you know, lectures and so on, a vision of how I want to get the economy growing faster. When that starts working, I hope to be able to start bringing those, that tax burden down. Now, I think that is a sort of, you know, a, an honest appraisal of what, you know, what he's about. Um, and I think he's sort of, um, you know, the I think there's a problem for him in the difference between his communication of himself as a tax cutting chancellor with the, in my view, inevitable um, fact that he's actually going to be a tax increasing chancellor. The point is he, he should describe, and this is difficult communication, I'm the guy who will increase taxes as little as I can, is a much harder message than I'm a tax cutting guy. It is, but people have seen the news, haven't they? They know that the last few years have been difficult. They're not divorced from that. And, you know, wedding those two things shouldn't be too difficult. But obviously he did dangle that carrot. He said, in two years' time, I will cut taxes. I mean, I remember the Gordon Brown budgets and the, um, you know, the, the politics that laid at the heart of that and how well-targeted those messages were and how things were accounted for and everything. I can't ever remember a, a Chancellor saying, here's my budget, but also right at the end, here's a trailer for the sequel. Oh, we've had quite a lot of that, actually. I mean, there's quite a lot of... Um, uh, it's become more and more common over recent years to announce the pre-announced tax increases and pre-announced um, tax cuts. Um, I mean, you know, I, I, I mean, that was such a... I mean, that sort of... You know, we'll take the basic rate down from 20p to 19p, um, in two years' time, as such an extraordinary sort of political moment in the in his spring statement um, speech. But the the extraordinary thing is that at the same time he's um, keeping the personal allowance, the point at which you start to pay income tax fixed, and that's actually quite a big tax rise because it because if you keep that fixed and prices and earnings are going up, then you're taking more uh, more um, income into the tax. Uh, into the tax brackets, and uh, I mean, at the moment, the forecast is that is is that net net, even in twenty twenty four, that won't be an income tax cut. He'll be cutting six billion worth with uh, what he's doing to um, the rate of income tax, but adding six billion odd um, from freezing the personal allowance. So even then, it's not actually a year of an overall income tax cut. On fuel duty, then he, he cut it by five p. Obviously, the cost of fuel has been soaring. How much of a difference would that make? Is that is that purely just a token move to say I've I've cut a little bit, I've done something? I mean, will that have any meaningful effect on on people's outgoings? Well, it's fine. <laughs> what effect will it have? It'll have an effect of about five p on a, <laughs> uh, which is you know three pound fifty three pounds on a on a tank. Um, uh, well, it's yeah, it, 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 it's one of these kind of small changes. It's better than a sort of kick in the head, but it's <laughs> but it's it's not going to change. It's not going to change the world, especially in the context of prices having gone up by whatever they've gone up by twenty pence in the last you know, month or two. Um, uh, I, I think that, you know the bigger worry for him is that he said very explicitly this is a one year cut. Um, uh, is he really going to put it up again next year? We haven't actually had an increase in fuel duty, even to keep up in line with inflation for well, 13 years, um, and uh, which has actually been a huge tax cut since 2010, um, because fuel duty is a certain amount of pence per litre. Obviously, you keep the pence per litre fixed, then its value over time falls as prices rise. So that's been about an 8 billion tax cut over the last 12 years. He's added another, whatever it is, couple of billion to it um, this year. Uh, would he really put it up again next year? Um, he's going to be under the most immense pressure, uh, not least from his own backbench MPs, not to do so. I mean, this is what's difficult for chancellors, isn't it? You know, it's about where you cut, where you save, but also where do you get that money in? And he's sort of, he's, he's cut off, you know, an area of uh, always permanent demand for fuel that does bring money into the Treasury. Well, except actually one of his worries is that permanent demand for fuel is going to go. I mean, I can't remember, is it 15, 20% of new car sales are already electric? Um, uh, and of course, the government has said they want to stop the sale of all petrol and diesel cars by 2030. So that, um, 
you know, that's a big loss of revenue because um, petrol duty is quite big. It's getting on for 30 billion a year. So it's about something like the fifth biggest tax in terms of um, revenue. And he's going to need to make that up uh, over the next couple of decades from somewhere. Now, that might be through road pricing or toll roads or um, finding some way of putting a tax on the electricity you put into your car or something. Uh, but again, that's a very tricky political thing to do. Obviously, we're living in volatile times on the back of COVID with inflation and, and now with uh, war in Ukraine. Um, what, what's the IFS view on the health of the public finances uh, and how stable we can expect things to be in the medium term? <laughs> well, the, in some Are sense, we going to be OK, I guess, is what I'm asking. Paul. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, as I... Uh... As I sometimes say, you know, we, 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 it's easy to get quite gloomy, but we are, we, are, we, you know, we are an awful lot better off than we were in the 1970s on every, you know, we make these comparisons with the past. Um, average incomes now are, I don't know, twice what they were there then or, or, or more. Um, we live 10 years longer. I mean, we live a lot longer than we uh, used to. I mean, our health is far better. The, you know, the stock of housing is far better. We pretty much all got central heating, which only a minority had. Back then, you know, we've got Zoom and um, uh, iPhones and all these sorts of things. Um, uh, so, um, you know, we, we, we can get too gloomy um, by looking at rates of change and not just re- remembering a little bit about how much better off we are than we used to be. Um, so, you know, a, a, a ray of sunlight um, in, terms of the, um, in terms of the public finances. You know, in some senses, they, they've done astonishingly well uh, in you know we, we had the biggest borrowing ever outside of the first and second world wars um, uh, over the covid pandemic and on current projections that borrowing is coming down very fast um, such that within a couple of years two or three years uh chancellor should 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 probably only be borrowing to invest uh, wow. which will be which will be quite a remarkable turnaround now you know, there's some fairly optimistic assumptions underlying that. So I suspect it won't go quite that well. Uh, but it's not, you know, the public finances are, are in reasonably, uh, are in reasonable shape in terms of borrowing. Okay, so that's, that's reassuring, because obviously, really, since the financial crash, the economy has not been in a great state. We had the crash, then austerity, and then just as it feels like you're coming out of that, COVID hits, and now we're getting this yeah, fueled, yep. fueled yep. Um, inflation. There'll be people under the age of probably thirty that think I've only ever lived in a time of economic strife. I've never really had one of those economic booms like I hear about from the nineteen nineties. I mean, at what point do you think are we out of the old economic cycle? I mean, I, I know yeah. that's a, a fool's question, but at what point do we get back to economics as usual? That's a really good question, and it's um, I sort of I kind of um, you know you. you well, I, I worry that I didn't enjoy my youth quite enough. <laughs> and, you, know, you, you, you don't realise how good you've got it when, when, when you've got it. And, um, you know, having, I suppose, from the sort of mid-80s through to 2008, you know, we had economic ups and downs, but, uh, but basically you know, incomes and earnings were rising pretty swiftly, you know, a reasonable rate every year. And we just got used to living standards growing by one and a half, two percent every year. And the economy was growing and, as I say, I mean, there were, there were, there were ups and downs, but um, uh, looking back at that, um, we've then had a completely different period since 2008. The biggest financial crash in, you know, pretty much 100 years um, in 2008. Um, several years of falling real earnings after that. Um, uh, austerity, on a, literally on a scale never seen before in terms of government spending. Uh, economic growth. Um, you know, feeble, um, much more feeble than in over the period since 2010, since 2008, than in the previous 50 years. Earnings barely growing. Um, uh, in fact, I think, I think we're in for the worst 15 years of earnings growth in history, um, literally. Um, productivity not growing, completely flat. Then we have, um, so we follow that up with the Brexit referendum, which um, is still expected to slow growth further and then we have COVID and then we have this crisis um, it really does feel um, like uh, you know uh, it, it is you're right a very different period to that which we had in say the 25 years before it uh, much more difficult 
um, and with very different sort of consequences for different sorts of people. I mean, again, there are groups who in the end have done extraordinarily well out of all of this, uh, particularly those who had assets and housing um, wealth pre-2010. Um, I mean, they've done really pretty well. Um, and there's been a sort of long-term redistribution away from younger generations who have not had earnings growth, who are earning no more than their parents' generation, which again is historically unprecedented, um, and you know, can't save much because interest rates are zero and can't buy houses because house prices are so high and so on. So all of this has had uh, you know, big distributional effects, which again, I think were pretty much um, uh, were, 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 were wholly unexpected at the time and very different from anything that we'd seen before. One thing Labour called for was a, a windfall tax. You know, we know we like this in 1997. Then it was on the privatised utilities to, to fund the, do, the New Deal. Now they're saying it would be on people like Amazon and Google who haven't paid their fair share. Why didn't Rishi Sunak fancy that, do you think? Yeah, well, I think, I think the windfall tax they were really talking about was actually on the energy producers. So, the, um, uh, of course, you know, if you're getting gas and oil out of the ground, um, you've suddenly become incredibly rich because the price of gas and oil has gone through the roof um, through no sort of you know, good work of your own. You, you suddenly started making vastly higher profits. And we've seen the profits of some of the energy companies and they are they are huge. Um, and, and, and so, you know, the, the argument made is therefore they should be paying a higher rate of corporate tax on those profits. Um, now, the argument against uh, a windfall tax is that we really ought to have a tax system uh, which is um, stable and transparent and where, uh, you know, before you make a profit, you know what tax you're going to pay on it. And if you start introducing windfall taxes willy-nilly, then people are going to stop investing and you have long-term damaging effects on the economy. And for sure, it would have been much better had we had in place a tax on... Uh, prior to this on um, energy producers saying, uh, you know, linking perhaps the rate of tax to energy prices or their profits, and that would have been a much better outcome. Um, in my view, um, you know, there is a case for a windfall tax at this moment on those producers. Um, I think it's a better case actually than there ever was for a windfall tax on the privatised utilities. Um, uh, it's hard to imagine that um, putting up, putting as long as you're very clear around the um, parameters of this tax, if you say, you know, so long as prices are above X, we'll levy a tax, a corporate tax, which is 10% higher on these specific groups. Um, I can't really see that doing a great deal of damage in the long run. It could raise a reasonably significant amount of money in the short run. Um, and help with some of the problems that we've been talking about. So you know, it, it, it's not a slam dunk. I think there are problems with windfall taxes. And in this case, there would no doubt be huge technical problems about uh, saying precisely which profits and which organisations and so on would be affected. Uh, but I have to say, I think the, 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 the case for it is probably stronger now um, on this particular sector than it's been for, for quite a long time. I mean, it does feel sometimes when you're tinkering around with income tax brackets, you're avoiding other pots of money elsewhere. And I know there's no magic money tree, but there are certainly people doing far better, like energy companies who are making huge amounts of money out of the present situation. And when you think about the cost of living and what it means for people who are out of work and on benefits, the difference between being forced to choose between heating and eating, it does feel as if though actually, for all the imperfect scenarios getting people that have made a lot of money out of the present situation to just pay a little bit more. And I know it's a lot overall, but the pain is less than it is for someone living in the circumstances that many people in this country still do. Um, is it just that it's as simple as Rishi Sunak is a conservative and therefore that's never going to animate him in the same way that it would say Rachel Reeves, if she was in uh, number 11, or do you think a Labour chancellor still might, make similar decisions to Rishi Sunak? Well, um, I mean, the interesting thing about Rishi Sunak and indeed his predecessors as Conservative chancellors is they have, they have really whacked up taxes on high earners. I mean, they really have. Um, and I think this is something that hasn't been uh, appreciated at all. But the ta tax, um, on the, uh, 
tax on people on really high earnings, over 150,000, say, has gone up hugely um, since uh, since 2010. Something that I think is not norm, you know, not generally appreciated. So th- these conservative chancellors are certainly taxing the rich a lot more than the than Gordon Brown ever did. I mean, much more than Gordon Brown ever did. So there's a strange sort of um, you know political um, uh, juggling going on there. Um, in, in terms of the sort of the windfall tax, um, you know, I, I don't know enough to know how much uh, it's not happening because the advice the Chancellor's getting is technically and administratively, we just couldn't do it, Chancellor, or, and to what extent it's not happening because he's taking a political view that it's the wrong thing to do. I, I, I don't know the answer to that. Is there anything else in the spring statement that I haven't asked about that, is interesting or that has caught your eye or, you know, however small, is there anything that I've missed? Um, I mean, there's, I mean, there, I mean, there are a few other things it's worth saying. I mean, what one is the, um, you know, what, what, what one is something in there and one is something that isn't in there. So the thing that isn't in there is anything about public spending. So inflation has the same, you know, ju- just like households, the government buys stuff um, and it's getting more expensive. But um, public spending figures were set out in cash terms last October, and um, uh, and they're now that those cash that cash is now worth less, um, worth less than it was, not worthless. <laughs> I mean, um, and uh, uh, and so the you know not only are households um, going to suffer the consequences of higher inflation, actually schools and the health service and so on are going to suffer the consequences of higher inflation because they're going to have to spend more with the same amount of money. And one of the big consequences of that will be, I think, more significant real pay cuts to public sector workers. And not least because my partner is an experienced teacher. The one example I continue to use is that experienced teachers have had really big pay cuts uh, over the last decade. Um, And the... um, Government has already put in evidence to the school teachers review body to suggest that they get only 3% this coming year with inflation at eight. Uh, so you do that across the public sector, you're going to get some really big, um, uh, some really big additional pay cuts. And the pay cuts in the public sector have been much bigger than in the private sector over the last decade. So that's one thing that wasn't there. You just simply didn't address that at all. One thing that was there um, was uh, quite a lot of technical stuff about student loans and graduate repayments. Um, now, the policy was announced uh, about a month ago, but this was the first time that it appeared in the um, it sort of in the budget arithmetic. Um, and he's banking quite a lot of extra money uh, from the changes to the way in which student loans are being repaid, um, where there are sort of three things going on. One is that, and this is something that you know, people have been generally wanting, the interest rate that you need to pay is going down. Um, Now, the curiosity there is that the only beneficiaries of that are actually high-earning graduates because most people never repaid, and so it didn't really matter what the interest rate was. They still repaid the same amount over their 30 years. Second thing, and this is the thing that will affect people immediately, um, is that the um, threshold above which you start to repay your student loan is being held fixed, and for new graduates is going down. Um, so that's going to feel like a tax rise uh, for a lot of recent um, graduates. And then there's the thing which is um, feels to me slightly like cloud cuckoo land, which is the decision to uh, increase the repayment year term from 30 years to 40 years. Now, that feels like cloud cuckoo land because the idea that this would be stable in, you know, we'll have the same system in 2060 as we do now, given that it's been changed about five times since it was introduced a decade ago, I think is you know, probably a bit hopeless, but put all those together and actually, hey, presto, in a couple of years time, it looks like the chances of getting an extra five billion. Now that's that's to do with kind of all sorts of bizarre accounting rules. Um, uh, but but you know, but but it cut to the cut to the chase. Recent graduates are going to feel like they've got a bit of a tax rise as a result of that as well. Student, fi- I could do a whole episode on student finance. Oh, you so- could. Well, let's do that. <laughs> Let's treat ourselves to the student finance special. <laughs> um, Paul, it's always a pleasure having you on here. Thank you so much for being able to explain these things so clearly and succinctly. And 
so quickly after the Chancellor's statement has been put out. I mean, it must be a hectic time once that document lands. It is pretty hectic. I mean, the, the extraordinary thing is that um, I think this is probably the last time I'll talk about it because, you know, the, the, the public um, or the media interest sort of within 48 hours is gone and we moved on to the next thing. So, so you have to sort of get on top of it incredibly quickly, get, get, get the analysis out and then actually thankfully move on to something else. Paul, thank you so much. We follow, we all, you know, you, you have many fans who listen to this show, follow your work and the work of the IFS, and you do a great job in explaining the public finances and, and holding the government to account. And we're very grateful. Lovely. Thank you very much. Cheers. Oh, man, what a guy. He should have his own TV show. He should be on every week explaining what's going on with the economy. I don't think we have really great economic education in this country in terms of like public service broadcasting. I mean, maybe I should just get him on every week. We'll do five minutes about the economy at the end of each episode, but I'm fascinated by economics and, and, uh, and the political decisions and the economic decisions of chancellors, but also what can the bank of England do when inflation is global? You know, what, what are the options available to you? And our behavior is changing all these things. And of course, just the dawn of electric cars is going to change our relationship with petrol and fuel tax and all stuff like that so that these things are coming and uh, being able to talk to someone who just understands it all so well and can communicate it all so well I think imagine if he'd gone into politics what a phenomenal chancellor or shadow chancellor he'd be um so uh, maybe that maybe maybe that should be uh, a qualification for being a, a, a Treasury Minister would be a period of time working at the IFS. But you can follow Paul on Twitter. I've put a link to his Twitter profile and all the phenomenal briefings that the IFS just puts out there for free. It's an amazing group, uh, an amazing organisation, rather, that, that it's just, just plays such an important role in educating the public about the reality of our public finances uh, and the impact of them. It's fantastic. So, um, obviously, I always love recording these episodes, but when you get to pick the brains of someone who, I mean, my God, you know, that, that statement's been out just a few days and already he's on top of it. That's exactly what it means. What a, what a remarkable public service that is for all of us. And now we are all fully briefed on what the spring statement means and um, what the coming years may hold. And while the coming weeks for me hold um, more touring and more live shows, as I say, both Edinburgh shows are now sold out, but there's a, about four or five tickets left for Glasgow. Uh, and then I'm going to Leicester and all sorts of other places. Um, uh, the political party, of course, returns on Monday, the 4th of April with a fantastic James Cleverly. That is, he's a, such a phenomenal guest. That'll be a really funny night. And then uh, a week after that, the rescheduled Christmas special with Rosanna Anand Khan and Jacob Rees-Mogg. And then a week after that with Rosie Duffield and more guests to be announced. And future shows include Lisa Nandy, Gary Neville and David Davis. And oh, yes, I'm bringing my tour show to London uh, for a big show at the Bloomsbury Theatre on Saturday, the 23rd of April. So uh, thank you for downloading this. Please do share it far and wide. Leave a review, leave a written review and it helps get the podcast at the charts. And I'll see you soon. Have a great weekend. Ta-ra. 